We got two places for you to open this morning where Paul read for us earlier in Mark as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark. And then also turn to Philippians chapter uh, 3. We have two texts to read from this morning. Uh, the title this morning is The Fellowship of His Suffering. Mark 15, but I want to go back to verse 15 that deals with the scourging. Mark 15, verse 15. <clears throat> So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they struck him on the head with a reed. They spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and let him off to be crucified. Now they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, Paul, in writing to the Philippians, states, But indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered, the loss of all things, I count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his own death. Let's turn back to Mark, almost through Mark. This morning I would like to look at the physical and spiritual suffering of Jesus before and during this day when he was crucified. It would have been uh, during the Passover And after we probably do a little more detailed study than we've ever really done about the crucifixion, the suffering, the beating, we don't get a lot of it from Mark. Because remember, Mark is right to the point, and uh, the reoccurring word is immediately, so it's very, very fast moving. We're going to discover this morning, we're going to find more about what he went through from the Old Testament than what we see in the Gospels themselves. 
So we'll look at the physical part of what the Lord went through, but then um, something more traumatic that happened to him while he was on the cross, and that is would have been an emotional part when he was separated, actually, for the first time ever from the Father. So we'll look at that. Then what I'd like to do, if Paul is saying he wants to identify with the Lord's suffering, we'll look at what Paul's life was actually like as a believer. And then I'll look at three or four different kinds of ways that you and I as believers actually suffer. And that it's a biblical concept that uh, nobody likes to talk about. You don't hear it from many pulpits because it's not very happy clappy, but it's a reality that uh, for all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer, somebody say it, persecution. Suffer it. And so our Bible study this morning is basically about suffering. And it's, it's as we make our way through the whole counsel of God, we want to be able to give you the whole counsel of God. And a big part of the Christian life is going through trials and testings and sufferings. So with that as a background, um, let's look at um, Mark chapter 15, the scourging that the Lord went through in verses 15 through 19. We read, um, Pilate wanted Jesus off the hook. He had examined him. At least three times he comes out and says, I find no fault with this man. And he thought by uh, releasing, they gave them, a, the Romans had a custom. They could release during the, um, the holiday a prisoner of their choosing. So he pulls out Barabbas and Jesus and the crowd chooses Barabbas. That's what we read here in verse 15. To gratify the crowd, they could have released Jesus, but instead it was Barabbas. But they delivered Jesus and they scourged him to be crucified. Uh, I believe that Pilate did this in order, because it was such a brutal experience, what a scourging is, and I'm gonna get into the gory details of it this morning, just how much the Lord suffered. And And Pilate's thinking, if I do this and they see how much he suffered, maybe then they will let this innocent man go. Remember, Pilate's wife came down and said, look, I had a dream last night about this guy. And you don't want to have any part of him um, being judged because he is not guilty of anything. So he's got his wife, his own conscience is telling him that the Lord is innocent. His wife is telling him the same thing. But the crowds um, were demanding that uh, he be crucified. So scourging, um, scourging, when the physical fitness of uh, the offender had been ascertained, what would happen is they would bind him to a pillar and they would lay his back and his chest bare. They would apply 13 strokes that were administered on the chest and 13 on each shoulder. If the victim died, no blame was attached to those inflicting punishment. The law forbid a Roman to be scourged. 
only slaves, runaway slaves or criminals uh, were scourged. Um, the Romans commonly used a scourge. It would be weighed down with pieces of bone or metal. Uh, scourging usually followed the uh, condemnation to crucifixion. But here it seems to have preceded in the case of Jesus because Pilate thought the Jews might have been satisfied with the degree of the punishment. So the idea here of scourging went something like this. You want to elicit information and have confession come from the person who's getting scourged. And to uh, better get this information out of the person, what they would do is explain to him, um, we are going to scourge you. And we'll go back. Um, that's a good place to go back and find, go to Deuteronomy chapter 25 before I explain um, Usually today you watch the, um, the, the cop shows where they take the guy and they put him in a room and they interrogate him. They put the light on him and the idea is to break him down so they can get him to confess and they'll put him there for hours and hours and hours and hours just to get the guy to confess. Well, that's the idea with scourging. Where does it come from? It comes from the law. And there's a reason that there's only 39 stripes and not 40. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, Deuteronomy 25, the first three verses. If there's a dispute between men and they come to court that the judge may judge them and they justify the righteousness and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge will uh, cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows may be given him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother may be humiliated in your sight. So we read 40 lashes minus one. Why? Because if they didn't count correctly, and you went over 40, and you actually gave 41, what you just did is broke the law. So to play it safe in accounting, it was always 30, it was 40 lashes minus one, just in case somebody counted wrong. And they couldn't come back and say, you, that was 41, you just broke Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25 in these verses here. So the scourging... Um, Turn to um, Isaiah 50, and while you're turning, let me explain the interrogation progress here. They would start off with um, the whip had three tassels on it with the bone uh, into it, literally to rip open the skin and have it come off. They would explain to the prisoner that if he talked, that they would go easier on him. And if he would confess his crime. However, if he would not confess his crime, the beating would intensify until they actually reached the 39th stripe. Well, the Lord had nothing to confess. He was innocent. Pilate himself said so. So as the Lord as it says in Isaiah 53, he opened not his mouth when he was judged. 
he had nothing to say. And so he received uh, the fullest of the scourging that was permitted as he was not doing any talking. So what we have here with the scourging, it goes on to tell us that um, he was probably also beaten with, with rods. Um, along with the scourging, if you're in Isaiah chapter 50, verse six, they not only scourged him, this is not in the gospels, we have to get this from Isaiah. Verse six says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now guys, any of you that have beards, you know what it's like even when a little child gets a hold of it and yanks it. Well, that's one thing, but to have it physically yanked out of your face. And we're told here, if you go to chapter 52, verse 14 of Isaiah, that his face, just as many were astonished at you, he had received such a beating that his vestige was marred more than any man. I don't know if this is literal or not, to be honest with you, but he was so beaten as a result of the scourging and um, the pulling out of the beard that his face was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And before, as long as we're here in um, 52, the crucifixion itself is alluded to in chapter 53, verse five and six. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised. And this is where I think the rods come in. Paul is gonna talk about being beaten by rods, I think, five times. But he was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, the scourging, we are healed. To a Roman guard who had a prisoner who was condemned, it was gloves off. They could do whatever they wanted to. The Romans had a game that is called hot hand. Uh, It went something like this. Each Roman would stick up a fist in the face of Jesus. Then they would blindfold him and all but one would hit him. So say there's five guys in a circle and they're all holding their fists in front of Jesus. And all four of them would hit him except the fifth guy. They beat his face until, into a pulp until I don't think he could look at a man. Of course, when they did take the blindfold off, he had to pick out the fist that did not hit him. Of course, the prisoner could never pick out the right one, and even if he did, they would admit it. It was the right one because they were going to play the game again and again. It was a vicious beating, which probably was the reason that Simon from Cyrene had to uh, carry the cross. The Lord was physically exhausted from the scourging and the beating. um, I like to watch a good fight every once in a while, a 10-rounder, lightweight, middleweight, heavyweight, whatever. But with, with it, you know, you have the bobbing and the weaving. You see the punch coming and you can, you can go with the roll. Not so here. This was straight on. 
He, he could not see anything coming. And as far as the Roman guards were concerned, he's going to die anyway. Why not let us just take him out? And um, um, when it read, we read here in Isaiah 54 that he was marred more than any man, that could actually be literal. And what the Lord went through with the scourging, with the ripping out of the, of the beard, with the rods, uh, he, was, he was beaten literally to, to a pulp. Let's go back to Mark chapter 15. So the scourging would have laid open his skin. A lot of people died from the scourging because of the loss of blood. But in uh, Mark 15, 22 to 28, we have what is called the crucifixion. And we read, and they brought him in the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. We call it Calvary. That's where we get our name, Calvary Chapel. Actually comes from Golgotha. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh. Now this, this would have been a numbing agency, the myrrh. But he refused to drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was about the third hour and they crucified him and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. So this was his crime. His crime, um, Pilate came right out and asked him. He says, are you a king? He says, I am, but not of this world. My kingdom isn't of this world, otherwise my disciples would fight. And he says this, he told them that was the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? And of course, the answer to that is Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Good place for an amen. I often wondered what it must have been like standing in front of Pilate, who is standing before God. And he's handling himself as if he is God, because he is God. And I think Pilate wanted out in the worst way. Who are you? And I don't, when they put this inscription up there, they, there were those that objected and say, don't say he was the king of the Jews, just say that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. I think Pilate believed he was the king of the Jews. And so they crucified him with two robbers, one on each side. And I want to read this because whenever we go through the scriptures, I want to point out what's happening here was foretold 800 years earlier. This prophecy in verse 28 is fulfilled. That the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. So Mark puts it in there that this is a prophecy, and it's being fulfilled as Jesus is hanging upon the cross. Now, turn with me to Psalm 22. Again, what the Lord went through is given to us more in this psalm than actually what the Gospels tell us what he went through as far as the torment of being on on a cross. I've told this story before. I didn't tell it the first service, but I'll tell it. This goes back to 72. 
I was a young believer, long hair and a beard. I was the only hippie in the church. And um, we had a traveling evangelist come through. And um, he put on um, skits uh, to dramatize the crucifixion, to actually see what it would look like. So, seeing that I was the only guy with long hair and a beard in the church, I was the one they put on the cross. And people would actually come down and, and, and actually have to look, and then the evangelist would speak. Well, um, he liked me so much, he took me on the road, we went to Chicago, we went to other places. And, um, but I'm telling the story to only tell you this. I, was, I had my hands tied up there. And I gotta tell you, after 10 or 15 minutes, the agony and the pain, we're not talking any nails here at all. I'm just talking about, imagine trying to hold your hands out for any length of time at all. And there's an agony that just goes along with that. The crucifixion was not, it was capital punishment that would never be merited out to a Roman or a beating. That's why Paul got off one time. They beat Paul and then they found out he was a Roman and they go, uh-oh, we didn't know he was a Roman. We're in big trouble. And he says, you can go now. And Paul says, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm a Roman. You go get the guy that told me to be, be uh, beaten with rods. I want him to come and tell me I can go. And they went and got him because Paul was born free in Rome. This crime of capital punishment was given to runaway slaves and criminals. It was meant to terrify anyone who watched this process taking place. The cross could have been anywhere from two feet off the ground to up to nine feet up in the air. We don't know for sure. The crossbar would have been carried and then applied to um, the main shaft that um, um, you know, people wear it today as a piece of, piece of jewelry. I don't fault you if you do. Some people like to let people know they're a Christian. It's, it's a symbol of who we are as Christians. But it's a piece of jewelry, and yet it is uh, the most painful instrument of torture probably that the world has ever come up with. And so it wasn't until when we read from Isaiah 53 that um, they pierced my hands and my feet uh, and I count all my bones. We're in Psalm um, uh, 22. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. We find all those who see me laugh at me to scorn. They shoot out their lips. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Go down to verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. Verse 16 and 17, for dogs, a term for Gentiles, so non-Jews, have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Crucifixion wouldn't be around for the next 800 years. The Romans were the ones who invented this torturous, actually the Medes and the Persians did it too, but nothing um, like what um, the Romans did. 
Uh, one time over 20,000 people from runaway slaves were crucified to put fear into any Roman slave that they'd ever think about take, taking off. Capital punishment for Judaism was stoning. Um, and it was done on a public setting close to a road so that anybody passing by would see the terrible um, torment and torture that was being experienced, and then it would put what their crime was up above. Let's say you were a thief. All right, thief. So now you got a thief walking by and seeing that, and he's thinking, maybe I should quit being a thief because I sure don't want that ever happening to me. So we have here the physical suffering. Gang, I can't put it into words. We take communion this morning. We take the bread that's got the little stripes on it, the unleavened bread with the stripes to represent it. And we do it because it's one of two things Jesus asks us to do. Don't forget the crucifixion. And yet we can become numb to what really happened when we do this. When it comes to the blood, um, that was a spear thrust in Jesus' side that came out with blood and water. And uh, the Lord um, died. The other two thieves had to have their legs broken. Uh, Suffocation is how they died. Imagine your back being laid open and the only way you could breathe was to push yourself up to catch air and then let it down. Usually took two or three days for a person to pass away. But this was the Passover and the sun was going down. So they had to hurry up the process. So they take clubs and they break the two thieves' legs. They can no longer raise themselves up to get oxygen. And they go to do it to the Lord. It looks like he's dead, but just to be sure, um, they put the sword into the side The blood mixed with the water verified that indeed uh, the Lord was dead. He suffered terribly, more than what we can say. And yet um, he told the disciples ahead of time exactly what was gonna happen. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be betrayed. I'm gonna be beaten. And then I'm gonna um, be crucified. And then I'm gonna rise again the third day. And right over their heads. They had no idea uh, what the Lord was gonna go through physically. But I think the Lord suffered more emotionally, if that's possible, because of, uh, let's go back to Mark, what Mark tells us in verse 33 and verse 34. Jesus was on the cross for six hours from nine till noon and then at noon darkness fell upon the earth. And it was during this time that the sins of the world were being paid for. When Bruce Carroll was here he sang the song one of my favorites that he does called The Great Exchange. And what was happening during this time Jesus was on the cross is all the sins of every human being that has ever lived was being placed upon Jesus Christ. And judgment was taking place at this moment. Your sin and my sin 
we're judged. And not everybody has received that free gift. The thief that said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he believed. You're going to meet him someday. He's in heaven. The other guy? No. He refused to believe. And so it is when we present the gospel. Some believe and, and some do not. But I think the greatest suffering that the Lord experienced, <clears throat> we don't have it all here in verse 33. Let's read it, Mark 15. When the sixth hour had come, so he was on the cross for six hours, nine till 12, 12 to three. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would make it six hours. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if I would go back to Psalm 22, that's not exactly what it says. There's more to it. All of verse one says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? There's no way that I can comprehend with my finite mind eternity. I can I can somehow picture going into the future forever. What I can't wrap my head around is that God has always been. He never had a beginning. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is what we call the Godhead, the deity, the Trinity. They have always been one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And um, it's not three gods. Um, It's one God. It's three gods in one person is what it is. And that is a mystery. Show us the Father and we'll believe, the disciples said. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At the baptism, you have the Holy Spirit coming down and lighting on him. Don't let anybody ever tell you that there's no such thing as a trinity because, oh, the word trinity isn't in the Bible. It's all over the Bible from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim in the Hebrew, that's plural. El is singular. In the beginning, God, El, that's not what it says. It says, in the beginning, Elohim, plural, gods, created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26 says, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. You have the the Trinity all the way through the scriptures. The emotional thing here that again I can't put into words. God the Father had to forsake his son. And he was separated for the first time ever throughout eternity. And so that A holy God cannot be apart and separates himself from sin. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse I think it's 21. Again, he who knew no sin became sin for us and then he gives us his righteousness. That's what's happening on the cross. Not just taking away the sin, but as far as if you believe in him, um, you have his righteousness. So that how God, that, that's the only way God can live in you. 
Where did God allow his presence to be during that time? In the Holy of Holies, in the temple. When Jesus died on the cross, it said the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. Can you imagine being one of the priests taking care of duties that day? Only the high priest goes in there, and that's only once a year on Yom Kippur. And now it's wide open. And he's looking at himself and saying, I'm not dead. What's going on here? Well, the father is saying the door is wide open. Now, every man, every woman could have direct access to have God living in them. First Corinthians 3 says, don't you realize that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? That God dwells in you? Well, in the Old Testament, you didn't even go near the mountain where God's presence was. If you touched the mountain, you died. It was that it's that simple. And now the fact that he can dwell and live in us, that's what Jesus always knew, the presence of the Father. And now all he was experiencing for that time on the cross, think of your most hideous sin. And imagine that. That's just one. And we've been doing it all of our lives. And all of that, going through the consciousness of one who is perfectly pure and holy. And that's being laid on him, and the father had to turn away for that time. I think the emotional suffering was more than the physical suffering, if that could even be stated. All to say this, what Jesus died on the cross, for you and I, um, uh, there's nothing that we can do. Oh, there's one thing we can do. We can offer the sacrifice of praise. Good place for an amen. We can do, it's only when you understand what he did for you that you'll really love him. Greater man, greater love has no man than this, than a man would lay down his life for a friend. That's what he did. He demonstrated how much he loves you. And so what does he want in return? Well, he just wants you to return that love. Have an attitude of gratitude. And say, Lord, it's only by your grace that I can stand before people and talk about you. It's only by your grace that we can do anything as Christians. And if somebody wants to compliment you for some good deed you did because you're a Christian, you can say thank you. But in the back of your head, you better be saying, but by the grace of God, period. Praise the Lord. Lord, you get all the glory. Another good place for an amen. All right, let's move on. Now, Paul tells us that he wants to know the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. That's quite a statement. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. Paul is talking about his personal walk with the Lord. Verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundantly, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. There it is, minus one. How many times? Five times. The Lord had it one time. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbery, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in cities, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, and sleepless often, hunger, thirsty, fasting often, in cold and nakedness, These are all the physical things. And then he says, besides all these things, what comes upon me daily for my deep concern for the church. Paul went around encouraging, building up the churches. But everywhere he went, he got thrown in prison because he'd go to the synagogue and try to reason with them. And then he would experience all these things. Paul, haven't you ever read your best life now? (laughs) Obviously not. And we laugh at it, but when we look at biblical Christianity, it just does not line up with the American gospel that's so popular today. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite if we're talking biblical Christianity. So our best life now, I don't think so. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And the reality of, of, of suffering just isn't, that's one of the great things about making yourself go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. Because now this morning, we're talking about suffering. You know what I know? Many of you are suffering. Either through the loss of someone, either through a physical affliction, maybe you're up to your eyeballs with spiritual warfare from every corner. A couple weeks ago, I had this um, uh, cold, and I can't, tell you how unspiritual you feel when you're sick. Am I really saved? (laughs) Am I born again? Well, I sure don't feel like it. That's why the Bible says that we walk by faith instead of sight. My body is telling me, you're suffering. And uh, yet, uh, my Bible tells me that I'm not to put any confidence in the flesh or feelings, period, but only what the word of God says. I'm still here, never gonna leave you, never gonna forsake you. Yeah, but I don't feel like it. Well, feeling son has nothing to do with it. It's all by faith. Let's look at some different ways Christians suffer. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter one, verses five through seven. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow, praise the Lord, we're going to heaven. And in this, we greatly rejoice. Praise the Lord. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why the trials? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Remember those words. Your faith is gonna be tested by fire that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse tells me as a Christian that I'm going to be tested. We all have heard the terminology, I'm going through a fiery trial. Not just, I'm I'm going through a trial. No, I'm going through a fiery trial. This is a burner. And the reason for the trial here is that it is tested. So your faith 
is going to be tested in the same way that Abraham's faith was tested when the Lord says, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, take him to the land of Moriah, and there offer him as a burnt offering on a place that I will show you. Abraham does it. Even to the point of bringing the knife almost before he brings it down, the Lord says, stop. Now I know. Now I know what? Now I know that you love me more than you love your son. Of course, he wouldn't let Abraham go through with it. It was a test. And then Abraham prophesies. And he says, someday um, it will be seen in the mount of the Lord what just happened here is gonna happen again when another father is gonna allow his son to actually go through with it and be an offering. But what was it? It was a testing of his faith. Job also got tested. And I'd like you to turn to the book of Job, the oldest, I think the oldest book in the Bible. It's on page 507, if you have any difficulty finding it. Why bad things happen to good people, yes. I'm not gonna read the first 12 verses. Uh, I'll explain the background here. We have Job, he has a large household. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, female donkeys, very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was respected, he was wealthy, he had it all. That's the earthly perspective. Picking it up in verse six, we're in heaven. We have the heavenly perspective. And we have angels showing up, and Satan shows up with them. What you say? Satan is in heaven? Yeah, he's in heaven. And the Lord says to him, Satan, where have you been? He says, oh, I've been walking around the earth, going to and fro. And the Lord says, well, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, there's none like him. And verse nine, Satan says, well, does Job not fear you for nothing? I mean, you put a hedge around this guy, I can't get at him. No wonder, no wonder he praises you all the time. You've made him wealthy, you've given him all these kids, he's got all, all these resources, cattle, and, and all this. You take that stuff away from him, we'll see if he praises you. It's interesting that the Lord says in verse 12, behold, all that he has, it's in your power. So here's the thing, Satan wants in on Job but the Lord is supernaturally protecting Job. But now the barrier is going to be removed. And what we find here is that in one day, all that that happens to Job happens in one day. So let's pick it up in verse 12, 13. It says that now there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I'm the only guy left to escape to tell you. And while he was speaking, I mean, this is just one right after another, another came in and says, the fire of God fell from heaven. Do you mean that the enemy has the power to call fire down from heaven? Answer, absolutely. And one of the reasons I think that the scripture shows us this here is because when the false prophet 
wants the world to worship the Antichrist, what does he do? He calls fire down from heaven. This is a false prophet. That the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants are consumed. I'm the only guy left to escape to tell you. Well, he was speaking. Another came in and said the Chaldeans formed three bands. They raided the, the camels. They took them away, killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I'm the only guy left to escape to tell you. And while he was speaking, another came in and he says, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. This is one of the titles for Lucifer, uh, the, the prince of the air. And that's, I think, one of the meanings here. That um, a lot of this stuff that I believe... Uh, um, is taking place. God is sovereign. He allows things to happen. Um, He was protected until he allowed this test to take place. The challenge was, "Ah, he only worships you because you've blessed him so much. Take it away. You'll see what he's really made of. And now he loses seven sons and three daughters. They're all killed. And I'm the only one left to tell you. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's room, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. How to have an attitude like that? There is the reason that Job is so highly respected. Would you be worshiping the Lord if all of a sudden you lose everything in one day, including your family? Would you have the attitude that says, well, naked I came, naked I go, praise the Lord. That's what he's doing here. It was a test. What would Job do if it was all ripped away? Well, this is all physical thing, physical property, his children, but not personal suffering. That's chapter two. So chapter two begins, we're back up in heaven. And when it says the sons of God, we're talking about the angels. Lucifer shows up again. The Lord says, where have you been? Oh, I've been going to and fro, walking around the earth. And um, the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright? And as a matter of fact, everything that you tried to do to get him to curse me, he did just the opposite, Satan. He worshiped me. And um, you, want, you wanted me to destroy him. And, and Satan said, skin for skin. A man will do anything to save his own neck or save his own skin. I'll tell you now, let me at him. Let me touch him with an affliction, a physical affliction, a painful one. And you'll, you'll see that he'll curse you to his face. Then Satan went out from, the Lord said to him, behold, it's in your hand, but spare his life. So see the sovereignty of God. Okay, but you can't kill him. But you can cause him to go through pain and torment. So Job was struck by boils, painful boils. I used to do a lot of water skiing And when I was a young kid, we'd be out all day long, just laying in the sun. And sometimes 
you'd get a sunburn that's so bad you get the, the bubbles. And boy, do those babies burn. Well, I don't know if this is the same kind. All I know is when I was a kid, they hurt. But this is from the top of your head to the bottom of your foot. And they were painful boils to the point that, and I know this is going to grow some people out, you would take a pot and scrape it to get the pus out. That's a gross thing and very, very painful what he was going through. While he sat in the midst of ashes, what a pitiful sight. And his wife had had enough. She had enough of seeing her husband suffer. And she says, do you still hold in your integrity? Curse God and die. God let this happen to you? All of us here know somebody who's angry at God because of something that has happened in their life. But aren't we always praying something like this for a person's salvation? Lord, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what they have to go through. I don't care what, how many of us came to the Lord when we were at rock bottom, many of us. And so here, Job is already a believer in God, so that's not the case, but curse God and die. Blame God for what you're going through. But he said, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Which point, Dwight, point is, as Peter says, your faith is gonna be tested like a fiery furnace and you're gonna be refined. And through it all, you're gonna be um, become one of two people, bitter or better. How's that for two Bs? <laughs> you will either become bitter through the trials or you will become better as you're going through this process. So one was a physical losing everything. I know some of you have lost jobs this year. I know some of you don't know where the next paycheck check is coming from. I know some of you are suffering from cancer, other diseases, some with um, transplants. Some of them have worked out, some of them haven't. Some of you have have afflictions that are very, very painful. And it can be, why God? Oh, and you can become bitter. Or, I believe that God gave us the book of Job as an example of how a Christian should deal with suffering. I mean, how can you lose when you lose everything and the only thing you can come up with is, well, the Lord gave, the Lord took it away, praise the Lord. You just can't lose with that attitude. You become better. But if you listen to the advice of Job's wife, God allowed this to happen to you in your life, curse him, curse God and die. He said, you're a foolish woman. Um, Shall we don't know all of God's purposes and his plans. Why does he allow this to happen to some people and not others? Answer, we don't know. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Good place for an amen. We walk by faith and not by by sight. Let's go back. And um, Job was pointed out and a target by Satan, why? Because he was a godly man who got up every morning and prayed for his kids in case they might have sinned. So he targeted Job. Do you know that in the New Testament, as 
Satan is looking around, he is looking for somebody who's speaking out for the Lord. Of all the, all the disciples, who spoke out the most? Peter. So, Luke 22, what is it said? Simon, Simon, come here. Satan has asked for you because he wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to wipe you out. And he picked Peter because Peter was a spokesman. All that to say this, the more you share your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, you become more of a target for spiritual warfare and attack. Amen for that one. It's biblical. Job, Peter, Paul, you know, all targets of the, of, of the enemy because, um, just, well, just take out your bulletin this morning. This is no coincidence that this would be, what we would read for this Sunday. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept your word. Verse 71. It was good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. How many times do we think, oh, it's a good thing I got sick? (laughs) I don't ever think that. But through it all, we probably learn to trust more in the word of God than we do our own personal feelings and emotions. Did Paul, um, in writing, I believe Paul wrote to the Hebrews, there's another kind of suffering that's different from what we've just studied. To get to that one, you have to go to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And as believers, sometimes we do things that we shouldn't. And like any loving father, he will correct us and discipline us. So it's, a sort of, it's another kind of suffering that every truly born-again Christian is going to experience. And you need to know about it. So that when it comes, it will be acceptable to you. Let's pick it up in Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, also daughters, do not despise the chastising of the Lord. And don't get discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastising. Some people get chastised by the Lord and they think, well, that's the way it's going to be. I'm out of here. I, th- I thought, I didn't know this was part of the deal. I didn't sign up for this. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there without a father who does not chastise? But if you are without chastising, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate. You're not even sons at all. It's another way of saying, if um, you're not getting chastised and you're in sin, then you're not even a born-again Christian. That's what this verse is saying. You're illegitimate. You're not sons at all. Yeah, but I was raised in a Christian home. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you say, Lord, I, I give you the lordship of my life. And then he takes you through the process. And part of the process is when you blow it and um, he will correct you. In the same way, when I was a kid, teenager, I used to sneak out. I don't, nobody else did this in your homes. I used to sneak out 
of my window and I would have my motorbike outside and I would push it all the way down to the end of the block before I would start the engine. Surely they would never find out. <laughs> and, um, but I got busted, you know. Um, Mom or dad decided to come and check on me at like two o'clock in the morning. Where, where's Dwight? He's not here. And then at 3.30 in the morning, all of a sudden, there he is again. Where you been, son? Well, I've been here all day, Dad. What are you? Uh-huh. And so we understand discipline. That's all I'll tell about that story. <laughs> Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect, shall we not much readily be in subjection, submission to the Father of spirits and live. For they indeed for a few days chastised us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit. You know, it's like dad saying, this is gonna hurt you more than it's gonna hurt me. I I never believed that for a second. (laughs) This is for your good, son. (laughs) Yeah, right, dad. That we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness who those who have been trained by it. You mean being corrected and disciplined by the Lord is part of a training process? Absolutely, and by all means. The Bible says you're being changed from glory to glory. How? Through correction, through trials, through tribulations. The fire is burning away the dross, just like a fiery trial will burn away sin in a person's life over a process of time. Let me talk about literal persecution that's taking place in the world today. So I'm switching gears, and um, before I do, I need to go to 1 Peter chapter 4. So go there quickly, please. And looking at verses 12, as we talk about these trials, in verse 12 it says, Beloved, don't think it a strange thing concerning fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. New Christians come to the Lord, now they're born again. Before they only had one nature, now they have two. They have a carnal nature, and they have a spiritual nature. And they're at war with each other 24-7. And all of a sudden, in their new walk with the Lord, they're experiencing the joy of the Lord, but they're experiencing this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And they go through trials about it. So we're told here, don't think it's strange. Concerning the fiery trial, that's to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that notice you are partakers of Jesus's suffering. That when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are, are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But here's the criteria for how to deal with suffering. Verse 15, don't let any of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, 
or a busybody in other people's matters. Uh, too many busybodies around, interested in everybody else's matters. The Lord says, it's none of your business. Leave it alone. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the, the gospel of God? Are there people in the, in the world today that are suffering um, for being Christians? Answer yes. Not so much the American Christian. But two weeks ago I was with my friend Mike Crow, Mike and Katie, um, We've been supporting them for as long as I can remember. They're in Beijing, China. And they happen to be in the States when our friend Steve Johnson of 47 years, all were friends with Steve. I was surprised to see them because they're supposed to be in China. But there they are at Steve's funeral. And we were able to sneak away for a little bit to talk, but not for long. And he says, Dwight, I can't even begin to tell you what's happening in China right now. Hundreds of Christians um, are being persecuted. Hundreds of churches are being burned. And the fact is, we don't know even how much longer we can stay there. It's getting that bad. And um, here's one article. Christians and minorities are living a nightmare in China under President Xi, uh, according to a congressional report. In recent months, there have been increasingly disturbing reports about the persecutions of Christians in China. After much research, these friends informed me that there were over 240,000 recorded examples of persecution in China in 2017. That's up from 48,000 in 2016. This represents a very uh, concerning spike in hostility. I'm not going to read all of this except to say that basically what China's been doing in uh, 2012 to 2014 was encouraging the underground church saying, you got freedoms. You don't have to hide anymore. You can come out. Then from 2014 to 2016, they invited them um, and pursued them to register to become what's called the, the three self-governing churches. But it was all a ploy. They just wanted to know where the Christians were. And in four years' times, they find out who they were. And then the shoe dropped in uh, 2017, and now that they know who they are, now they're going after them. They have what's called China's Skynet that combines mobile phones and GPS tracking. There's more cameras in China on people than any place else on planet Earth because they're a communist country and um, they're, it's back under sort of like the Mao um, regime. Over 2,000 crosses have already been burned or ripped down from church buildings. Hundreds of Churches have been demolished, and um, now that if they're caught, in September of 2017, the Chinese government announced that anyone who organized an unapproved religious event will be fined, 
about 15 to 40,000 American dollars. Anyone who rents or provides a venue for a Christian event will be fined 3,000 to $30,000. That's what's happening in China um, as, as we speak. Now they know who the Christians are and with the technology that they have, like my friend Mike told me, he says, I don't know how much longer that we can actually stay here. One personal story. Things are getting tighter here now. Everywhere it's facing persecution. Brothers and sisters are facing difficulties, suffering for their faith. My sister and her husband, along with three others, were put in jail for their gathering together with about 30 people. Their stuff has been taken away in a few big trucks. They were beaten and shocked by electric sticks with heads bleeding and arms in painful position. Their son David saw what happened and fainted when, it, when they did it. We visited them four days after they were in jail. They were sick. My sister almost had a heart attack. Her husband had gout, which almost killed him. They were suffering physically and mentally. They were released after 10 days and told by local authorities they had to leave their city and district. All this for holding Christian meetings in China. But what is clear is that millions of brothers and sisters in the vast, important countries are really suffering. What are they doing that's so wrong? Exactly what you and I are doing here this morning. And we do it with complete freedom, without any fears whatsoever. And praise the Lord is right. And yet, the the reality is that uh, the enemy knows he has a short time, and so that noose is only going to grow tighter and tighter and tighter. Let's face it, we all live in the same country and uh, Christians are being marginalized. More and more we're being marginalized. And um, I expect that to continue. So I have a Bible study on the fellowship of suffering because you better be ready for it. Um, Mike and Katie have been there for almost 40 years in China. And now, um, because of what's happening, um, Mike says uh, we don't know how long we're going to be able to stay one more story from the Old Testament to tie this all together let's go to the book of Daniel chapter 3 of course Daniel 2 is the famous dream of Nebuchadnezzar where he sees the image with the head of gold chest of silver belly of bronze and legs of, of iron and a toe is iron and clay and then in chapter 3 What he does is Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue 666 cubits high. Isn't that an interesting number? Only it's made of solid gold. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar that he was going to be replaced from gold to silver by the Medes and the Persians. So what does he do in chapter 3? He's defiant. He says, no way. I'm going to make my own image. It's going to be all of gold. And I'm going to call my 120 provinces and we're going to get a band together and they're all going to get down and they're all going to worship the image. And if they don't worship the image, I'm going to throw them in a fiery furnace. Okay, they have one problem. They have three, Daniel is not in this chapter and it's a whole Bible study in itself why he isn't here. But he's not mentioned. Only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Okay, the stage is set. The band is playing. All of his kingdom is there, and they all bow down, except these three Jewish boys. Why? Because thou shalt not worship or serve any other god, nor bow down to them. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sticking out like sore thumbs. And some of Nebuchadnezzar's administrators go, you know those guys that you set up over your administration? They, uh, next to Daniel, these were the guys in charge of, of the kingdom. He says, they're not bowing down. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they brought them before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, give you a second chance. At the time when you hear the sound of the music and you fall down and worship the image that I made, good. But if you do not worship, you'll be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, our God whom we serve, he's able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if not, even if he doesn't, Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar blows his top. He says, heat up that furnace seven times hotter and throw them in, but make sure you tie them up first. The Bible tells us that the men that threw them in that fiery furnace perished, but not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're up in there walking around. Nebuchadnezzar Looks down, verse 24, was astonished. He arose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men, notice the word bound, into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, sure did, king. He said, look, I see four men walking, so they're not bound anymore, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. As a matter of fact, the former of the fourth one looks like the sun of God. So they got cast in the fire. What did they say? Well, king, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But know this, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. So what happens here, what was the result of being in the fiery furnace? First, it was a test. All they had to do was bow down to the thing. No problem. We'll forget about it. We'll put you back on the, on, the, on the payroll. But they wouldn't do that. Instead, they were cast into the fiery furnace. Remember how often I say for every New Testament teaching, there's an Old Testament picture and vice versa? Okay, what did we read in First Peter? That you're being refined, tested like fire. And um, through the process, it's like gold. Things are burned away and you become more purified. Well, when they were thrown in, they were bound by something. What's the only thing that was burned off in the fire? 
that which bound them. They're, they're as free as can be. And the Lord didn't deliver them from the trial, but he was sure in there with them. And that's the way it is with trials. You may be going through a burner, but know this, the Lord's got you in a burner only to purify you, only to burn those things off that are binding you up. And through it all, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Well, he'll keep you in the fire and you'll be purified, but know that he's right in there with you going through it all. Gang, when Paul said he wanted to know the fellowship of his suffering, and when you're going through a fiery trial, please don't think the Lord has forsaken you, no matter what it feels like, no matter what you're going through, whether it's emotional, physical, um, could be any of the above, but know that trials and fiery trials are part of our walk with the Lord. Good place for an amen. I don't know if I'm quite at the place where Paul is at, where he is saying, you know, I really want to experience the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. That's not high on my prayer list. But I know it's going to come anyway, naturally. But know this, I believe the scriptures are clear when it comes to suffering. Um, And it's not part of what is being taught that needs to be taught in the church in America today because it's just the opposite. It's about never having uh, the prosperity doctrine, never having illnesses or sickness and always being prosperous. My Bible doesn't teach that. My Bible tells me just the opposite, that we go through these things to try us and test us and that we might become more like him. Do you really want to know him? Then we must accept the fact of the fellowship of his suffering. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark, we can't begin to fathom the suffering that you went through with the scourging, crucifixion. And Lord, if it happened to you, um, your word tells us that if we're truly yours, it's going to happen to us too. Lord, give us the Job attitude that no matter what, whether it's physical possessions that are taken away or physical health, may we be able to say the Lord gives, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if it's an affliction, be able to say, Lord, you suffered. And because you suffered, you're allowing me to experience this in a small way of what you went through. So, Lord, we give you the rest of this day. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing? No problem. We'll forget about it. We'll put you back on the, on the, on the payroll. But they wouldn't do that. Instead, they were cast into the fiery furnace. Remember how often I say for every New Testament teaching, there's an Old Testament picture and vice versa? Okay, what do we read in First Peter? that you're being refined, tested like fire. And um, through the process, it's like gold. Things are burned away and you become more purified. Well, when they were thrown in, they were bound by something. What's the only thing that was burned off in the fire? That which bound them. They're, They're as free as can be. And the Lord didn't deliver them from the trial, but he was sure in there with him. 
And that's the way it is with trials. You may be going through a burner, but know this, the Lord's got you in a burner only to purify you, only to burn those things off that are binding you up. And through it all, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Well, he'll keep you in the fire and you'll be purified, but know that he's right in there with you going through it all. Gang, when Paul said he wanted to know the fellowship of his suffering, and when you're going through a fiery trial, please don't think the Lord has forsaken you, no matter what it feels like. No matter what you're going through, whether it's emotional, physical, um, could be any of the above, but know that trials and fiery trials are part of our walk with the Lord. Good place for an amen. I don't know if I'm quite at the place where Paul is at, where he is saying, you know, I really want to experience the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. That's not high on my prayer list. But I know it's going to come anyway, naturally. But know this, I believe the scriptures are clear when it comes to suffering. Um, And it's not part of what is being taught that needs to be taught in the church in America today because it's just the opposite. It's about never having uh, the prosperity doctrine, never having illnesses or sickness and always being prosperous. My Bible doesn't teach that. My Bible tells me just the opposite, that we go through these things to try us and test us and that we might become more like him. Do you really want to know him? Then we must accept the fact of the fellowship of his suffering. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark, we can't begin to fathom the suffering that you went through with the scourging and crucifixion. And Lord, if it happened to you, um, your word tells us that if we're truly yours, it's going to happen to us too. Lord, give us the Job attitude that no matter what, whether it's physical possessions that are taken away or physical health, may we be able to say the Lord gives, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if it's an affliction, be able to say, Lord, you suffered. And because you suffered, you're allowing me to experience this in a small way of what you went through. So, Lord, we give you the rest of this day. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.